Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, your host, and our guest today is a true Olympic expert, the wonderful Karen Koppel. Karen, how are you? I'm great, thank you. I, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much. It's great to to be a part of this, and I will say that I have enjoyed listening to some of the other podcasts. It's like you get to hear everybody else's little slice of the pie, their perspective on what they went through, even if I knew them when I was part of it. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you've listened to them. And they are a small slice of the pie because everybody that I've spoken with, they could probably talk for hours about their Olympic experiences there in Salt Lake City. But what I want to start out with is just asking you a question like, where are you? I am now living in Bend, Oregon. In Bend, Oregon. Wow. How long have you been there? I have been here about nine years. I came down here after the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver. That's amazing. Are you working from home? I see it looks like a home office that you're in. Are you working from home these days? I am. With the coronavirus going on, of course, everybody's practicing safe distancing and all of that. And I am actually still working, though. I am now a commercial real estate broker, and that is actually considered one of the essential businesses. So I'm still pretty busy, surprisingly. How does that work with real estate, commercial real estate? I mean, how do you maintain your social distancing and all of that and still perform your duties? It it depends on the project. Basically, if somebody is looking at lease space, we still show spaces. We have to make sure uh, we keep that social distance, that we clean off doorknobs and handles and things like that, wear gloves, masks if it's appropriate, and not get too close to anybody. (laughs) And of course, everything's scheduled, so our clients are aware of it. Uh, For sales, a lot of what we do is computer research and um, looking at the finances and calculating, you know, return on investment and that sort of thing. So in that way, I do a lot of work at home anyway. Well, it's really, really interesting. Has your industry been impacted by this virus aside from having to do social distancing? I'm still working on this crazy Olympic movement and man, this event business is just pretty much totally shut down. Yeah, we surprisingly, we're not shut down, but there has been some impact. So I've had a um, a sale fall out of escrow because of it. The buyer was looking for um, a property to, to develop retail space. And as you can imagine, the retail industry has not been doing well lately. So... <laughs> That one fell out of escrow and we had a lease that um, a similar thing where somebody said, you know, I'm not going to sign that lease right now. It's not prudent. And that was the right thing for them. So, yeah, I can't imagine. I don't know on the business side or the commercial side on the residential side. My neighbor two doors down is uh, selling her home and she had an open house and an offer and the sale pending sign was up there and everything. And then this virus hit. The sale fell through. Her house is still for sale which I thought was crazy because this market here has been really hot. And in the last month or so, everything has gone super cool. Wow. It's still, it's still hot here, surprisingly, but there's a shortage of housing. So if there's something for sale, people are still trying to snap things up. Well, 
we could probably talk a long time about real estate and all those kind of things. But I know our listeners really aren't interested in real estate. What they're interested right. in is hearing the life story of Karen Koppel. And I want to start at the beginning or actually before the beginning. So I've asked everybody this question, but uh, you know, what were you doing before joining the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and how did you get there? Well, it is a, it is a kind of a funny story in a sense. Um, I just applied for the job and I had seen an ad in the Denver Post. I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and I had seen an ad for an architect slash designer who had event experience. And I had been doing events since high school, but primarily volunteering and that sort of thing. But the last year uh, prior to taking the Salt Lake job, I had been paid to take a, I took a leave of absence, if you will, uh, from architecture to run a community festival. And so that contract was up, saw this ad. It was very serendipitous, uh, responded to the ad, sent in a letter, my resume. And next thing I know, I get a call from Jerry Anderson and he identifies himself and says, first, almost first words out of his mouth were, where have you been on my life? And I just played along. I just jumped in and I said, I have been sitting here in Boulder, Colorado, waiting for your call. Why haven't you called me? (laughs) And we start laughing and he's like, it is so rare to find architects who know anything or have done any events. And so I said, well, you know, I've been doing them for a long time, but um, obviously smaller events, nothing to the scale of the Olympics. So then he set up a, uh, interview in Littleton, Colorado. He was transitioning from Atlanta and moving his household from there to, um, Salt Lake. And I might say at this point, I don't know that I said it, but this was 1996. So it was immediately after, you know, in between the Atlanta games and the day he, we set up to meet, turned out to be a blizzard. And if you know Colorado, <laughs> those are some pretty bad blizzards. And I'm sitting there going, oh, well, should, should I cancel? But then I'm like, um, it's a winter games. I better not. So I literally left two hours ahead of my appointed time, drove down to Littleton, met with Jerry, and then had to drive another couple hours back to Boulder. And I think he called me a week later and said, hey, want to move to Salt Lake and join the Olympic movement? And I said, absolutely. I I had about two weeks in which to do it. And there was no HR at that point. Like literally, I think I was their 35th hire or something like that. It was like the mid 30s. So I got a small stipend to move and I just picked up everything lock, stock and barrel and moved to Salt Lake. What was that like to just say, okay, I'm going to pack up my stuff and move? You know, I think I was just so excited about the experience. I don't know if you have ever had a situation where it it felt like I won the lottery. I, I literally, I get like this head rush of like, an overwhelming sensation of like, oh my God, this combines everything I ever have done in my life. The whole architecture side of things, the design and the build out, as well as what I had enjoyed doing 
on my off time, which was all the event work. And so this was just combining all of that. So I was so excited about that. Um, and I had moved before I've lived in a number of places. So for me, it was like, Hey, I'm going. So Karen, you joined in 1996, that's six years before the start of the games. You know, most outsiders, when they look at a games and they think, well, you got seven years to plan this thing. What on, what on earth are you going to be doing for seven years? So what exactly were you doing for six years? Well, first of all, I got asked that quite a lot. Friends and family, they're like, hey, wait a second. That's not until 2002. But there is so much that goes on with the, the build out of the games. And one of the things back then also is that there were no manuals. You know, the IOC has these um, sort of like facility guidelines now that they have in place. And they actually came out of Salt Lake to some degree. And we didn't have any of that. And we literally had to look at the venue use agreements, um, the, the venues and check everything. And even now the bids are different. The bids get into more detail and look at the operations and have tighter venue use agreements than they did back then. So literally I started working on all of the venues. So snow, ice, um, some of the non-competition venues. And we took an initial look at them, some initial designs. We looked at the requirements. Uh, the sport director at that time actually had me contact the IOC to try to find out, to talk to some of the sports federations to find out what some of those requirements are. And, you know, that's when we discovered that Little Dell didn't hold snow for the cross country and biathlon venue. <laughs> so we had to like quick figure out where we we're going to move that venue to. Um, part of that whole time frame, we're also looking at, you know, curling. We found out the curling venue had a sand base. And so we had to go in and put in a concrete base. Cause if, if you use a sand base, then it could take 30 days. If you have any issues during the broadcast, you have, it, it takes 30 days to remove that ice and then, and then rebuild up ice. So you need concrete base. So just different things like that, that you're working on, um, creating the structure of your own department. I was Jerry's first hire. So there wasn't anybody else in our department yet. Ranch Kimball was working on the Bob and Luge facility and he actually, he had already agreed to join the organizing committee, but didn't start until a month after I did. So, and then for a while, it was just the three of us. So you're, you're trying to build everything. I had to, you know, just even set up the, you know, like AutoCAD programs and computers, for what we needed. And um, I think one of my favorite phrases for when you work on an Olympics is that you are building the plane at the same time you're flying the plane. And you continually to do that for that entire six years. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating with architects is if you speak to them, they have probably a deeper understanding of the games than anyone else because they have to know how every functional area operates on a venue. So that means that you have to go through a, a huge amount of learning, right? To 
to and, okay. and, a, and a ton of interaction and integration with all the different functional areas to clearly understand their requirements to prepare their briefs and and design their spaces and so on and so forth. Just walk me through what that was like coming into a situation where you don't have any Olympic experience and having to absorb and acquire all of this information so you can design the venues properly. Great question. Um, well, first of all, as an architect and the type of work I have done in the past, I did a lot of what we call architectural programming. So that's exactly what you do. You go into any business, ask a lot of questions. What are their goals? What are their concepts? What are their needs? Um, and, and pull all that information together to create, in essence, what the program is for each venue. So as part of that, at least I had that background. The people that we had as part of the organizing committee helped tremendously. You know, obviously I picked their brains for everything that I could possibly understand from them. And it, it was everything from Bruce Dworshak in, in press when he was there, um, OBS broadcasters, uh, Mark Parkman, Slobodan Dumich, they were generous with their time because, of course, that helps them get what they need in the venues as well. But Sharon Kingman with IT, you you ask a lot of questions. You uh, find out information from what the sports federations need for the field of play. Uh, understanding that you have to separate Olympic family from broadcast press athletes. And as people came on, you got more and more information. So for example, like food and beverage was like probably one of the last things that we heard from. And I think even sports production. So you had to then accommodate those functions and those needs, even leading up into the games. So you, instead of a typical architectural project where you have maybe a programming for three or four months, uh, you literally were doing it for almost six years. I hope that listeners, you know, they can get some insight as just to what the level of work and the preparation uh, that goes into delivering these games. It really is. It really is amazing. All right. We've got to talk about people. You've mentioned a lot of names. Yeah. Uh, who are some of those people that you felt were just great mentors or they were super inspiring or they were just hilarious people to be around? Um, do you have two days? <laughs> There's so many people that are part of this. As you've as you've probably heard from many other people, there's so many influences, so many people that make up the games, that make them successful, that provide information, et cetera, to you. I would have to say, though, you know, one, obviously, Jerry, there's no question there. He he was somebody I worked for even after the games. Um, so he was really an important figure in my career, in my life. Um, Ranch Kimball, you know, Ranch Kimball was such a character. And I met him uh, when I, I did a, a trip there just to check things out before I ever moved. And what I loved about Ranch is he, you know, he's supposedly this contractor, but yet he has this really strong architectural background himself, good sense of design, very practical, but a character. I mean, who with a name like Ranch Kimball wouldn't be a character. And then what what a funny thing about him is when I finally moved there, he's like, well, where he was curious where I moved to, 
where I located. And I, and he's like, tell me the, tell me the three coffee shops that are, that would triangulate where you live. And I'm like, seriously? So I did. And he, he pinpointed almost exactly where I lived. So he was such a character because he loved, and he obviously loves his coffee. So he's definitely one of the people that I absolutely admire. I would say early on, there was just so many. I mean, I have great memories of things like skiing with Bernard Rusi. I mean, here he is, this 1972 gold medalist, and I'm not that great of a skier, (laughs) but we were out trying to figure out with a group of us trying to figure out where all the cameras were going to go in, in the snow venues. And he, he was just an amazing skier. I mean, we were out of Deer Valley and he skied down the mogul run and he didn't even use poles. He made it look like it was such a piece of cake. He, and he would stop and he would point out where, okay, well, we'll put a camera over here and then ski a little bit more and put a camera over there. And some of those experiences are just amazing. Like you're not going to have that same experience again. I think those are some of the things that you really got. I, I really got to see anyway in those first few years for sure. So I want to ask you this question and I've, and I asked this of other people, you know, about a challenge or whatnot, but I'll phrase it a little bit differently just to kind of switch it up here. Uh I might be throwing you a little bit of a (laughs) curveball. What was the biggest challenge that you faced and how did you overcome it? So in what time frame? The whole thing? It doesn't matter. Just whatever. Um, There's, you know, you can answer it however you like. Okay. I will say, I think one of the things um, that's different from maybe uh, my time frame, having been there six years than maybe others is that, as you know, we went through the scandal with the IOC and the first couple of years were, it was all about learning what the Olympics were about and all the venues and those things we already talked about. When the scandal broke, that was really tough on everybody. And it, a lot of people came and went and that was tough to see. It's like any business where you lose people, you've worked with them and then they're gone and then other people come in and it's the tension around what's going to happen. You know, are there going to be any major changes from the IOC or are we going to get to keep the games? Are we not? There was just so much that was up in the air and stressful during that time. And I, I think I think it was mentioned with Daniel Pacheco, for example, that he said it was really authoritarian at that time. And it was. It was really uh, a rigid organization. It was all about budgets. We had to go through hour after hour after hour of looking at budgets for our venues down to, and it was kind of a joke in our department because it was down to like, well, are you using a screw or using a nail to build that? I mean, it was, it was pretty intense and some people got fired and there was just a lot going on. And I think that was a tough time. And it, and it was, you know, you start questioning yourself, do you, do you stay as part of this project or do you move on and find something else. And for me, 
it was sort of a mental, it was a mental challenge of what do you do? And I literally sat down and kind of wrote out what the pros and cons were, you know, of, do I want to stay here? Do I want to keep doing what I'm doing? And I loved, I loved the work. So at that point, I'm like, nope, I'm just going to persevere. And I think that's one of the things I got out of it too, is that that perseverance that just hang in there and it will all come together and things will happen. Karen, what were some of the other interesting stories that you had um, that you want to share with us this afternoon? Well, as you know, the games is a a lot of people helping make things come together. And and usually we have a build out of a few months for each of the venues. Um, we're doing test events all throughout those years, et cetera. But one of the things that was unique, I think, to these games is that uh, for figure skating that was held at the Delta Center, we only had three days in which to build out the interior of that venue. And that was because the basketball team played there. So literally the evening that the basketball team was done, the game was finished. I had to be on site. It was like 10 o'clock at night (laughs) and they're taking apart the floor, um, taking the homosote off, pulling that apart. Um, They had put down the ice earlier, like in that week. So they had homosote over that and then the basketball floor. So they had to take all that away. We had to put home, have some homosote laid out so that the uh, lighting can go up and, and everything else. It was a, what I like to refer to as a choreographed process. It was down to the nuts and bolts of when could something go in and it had to be fairly precise and in certain sequences. So it was, um, from 10, like roughly 10, 10 PM. I think it was on a Friday night, if I remember. And I worked straight for 36 hours. And then I saw your eyes. I know this is radio, but I saw your eyes. Um, 36 hours, went home for a two hour nap and came back to finish out the build out. So in that time, not only did we have to do field of play and all the audio video lighting that went into the upper part of the facility, but we also had to build out all the press tables and all the broadcast booths. And even some of the spaces down in the bowels of the Delta Center. So that was a, an amazing um, experience. I don't know that I could do it again, <laughs> but... But it was an amazing experience. And, and of course, all the departments and all the different entities that were building things out uh, worked really well together and got things done. So it was incredible. Man, how did you function on virtually no sleep for several days? That is crazy. You know, it, it's the adrenaline rush. And as an architect, I think um, my experience in architecture school, where you have to pull all-nighters sometimes for for projects, uh, comes into play. And I drank a lot of Diet Coke back then, <laughs> so the caffeine kept me going. And and the excitement of it, the you know, watching it come together, watching it take shape was amazing. Did you ever think to yourself, why on earth did we agree to let the jazz play in this arena three days before competition starts? I did, but it wasn't a matter of we 
agreed so much as that was part of a venue use agreement even before I got there and they had to play. It was part of the NBA rules and they couldn't change it. So we just worked around that as one of the parameters that we had to deal with. And in fact, um, we had tried to coordinate with the Delta Center of doing some things up front as much as possible. So for example, we went in a few couple of weeks earlier or so and put in a lot of the cabling, pre-cabled the building. So the, some of that infrastructure was done early. Um, broadcast had wanted to put one of their... Um, technical rooms. Originally, we had agreed with the Delta Center that it was going to go on the concourse. And literally, right before they were going to start building it, I think it was a month earlier or so, uh, they came back and said, no, you can't. (laughs) So we had to find a space on the outside and pop a door into the building so that they could then have a, a broadcast room up there. So a lot of those things, it's just coordination. It's constant communication and I think as long as you're letting everybody know what needs to be done and when and communicating about it, everybody pitched in, worked together and made it happen. Well, kudos to you for pulling it off and to pull off such a choreographed exercise. You got to do a lot of, well, you got to do a lot of integration. You got to do a lot of coordination. You've got to do a lot of talk throughs and tabletop exercises and simulations and everything to prepare for that. That must have been a lot of work to prepare in a way that would allow you to convert that venue very seamlessly. It was, but again, you, you have all the departments and people are doing, are compromising where they can or coming up with creative solutions as much as they can. Like, how do we make this work? Any other fun or interesting stories you want to share with us before we start wrapping it up? Well, I think, you know, I I was talking about like the early years, as far as, you know, learning about the Olympics and then the going through that scandal years. And I, didn't want to leave that on a negative note in a sense, but um, when things turned around, when we had Mitt and Fraser come in, I will say that created a whole different atmosphere in the organizing committee that really pulled us together as a team. Uh, I think a lot of the people that lived through the scandal were pretty close and and you remain pretty good friends or have those feelings because you went through that sort of traumatic time. Um, But it was so great to see the organization expand because we had been working because of the scandal and all that budgeting. We had been working with very little staff across SLOC for a a while. And some of the things I remember, like, you know, Doug Arnott had hired Colin Hilton and Kelly Elliott. And those were the only two people working on all the operations plans for um, ops management for a long time before they started hiring more people to fill those slots. So I think there's a lot of people that put a lot of time, work and effort into making the game successful. And a lot of people that weren't there anymore. Um, when the scandal started happening, we, I had a photo, a color photo of Samaranch's visit. And we were lucky enough to, I think there was 60 people who were part of that photograph. And we each got a color copy of that. So when the scandal happened, I actually took that color copy and made a black and white Xerox and a highlighter. And as as people started leaving, I started highlighting who was gone. And then we had a couple of people come back. And it was just really interesting to see how many people survived that and then moved on and 
were part of the games. But I think a shout out should go out to all the people who weren't able to be there in the end because they still worked as hard as possible during that time frame and contributed a lot as well. Well, I think it's very appropriate to shout out to those uh, people because it's true. And and every games edition has that to a certain extent. There are very few games editions where there isn't any turnover in the leadership from the very beginning to the very end. And um, all of those people, whether they were there at games time or not, are needed to make the games a reality. So that's very, very thoughtful of you to give them a shout out. Well, Karen, this has been a super fun, enjoyable conversation for me. I've really enjoyed it. Before we let you go, we're going to come to our assignments. Our first assignment for you is to think of a song that whenever you hear it, reminds you of Salt Lake 2002. So Christian, I cheated. I will say that there isn't really a a single song I can think of. It was way too long ago. And people who know me know that I am horrible when it comes to names of songs. Like I couldn't tell you any song titles. So I went back and I, I knew this was an assignment. So I looked at some of the songs and I went, Oh yeah. So the song I'm going to pick is let's get the party started by pink. It was, it came out, I think in that summer right before a lot of the build out was going on. And especially in my mind, having been there six years, I'm like, okay, I'm tired of planning. Let's just get the party started. So it was a great song. Well, that is a great song. It's a great song. And I'm very happy to add it to our list. We've got the Spotify playlist and listeners, you can go on to Spotify. You can query up the Salt Lake 2002 retrospective playlist and you can see all the songs that all of our guests have chosen. And it's a it's a wide variety of songs. It's been a lot of fun to listen to those. So thank you very much, Karen. Our next question for you is a food question. Is there a particular restaurant that you like to go to? And uh, what was that restaurant? So I I heard some of the other podcasts and everybody obviously called out the Globe because that was definitely one in the later years. Um, in the early years, we were more on, I think it was 5th East and 2nd or 3rd South in a building over there. And we didn't go out a lot, but if we wanted something special and to try to escape a little bit from the office. Uh, I always chose the Oasis and it was just a calming, relaxing atmosphere. It had that adjacent bookshop. So you could go over there, get a nice meal, healthy food, and even browse around the bookshop. So That's a great choice. I'm glad you chose the Oasis. Back in the nineties, I worked for IBM. IBM had its office building on the corner of South Temple and fourth or fifth east that same street that the oasis was on and so you could just walk down a block and a half and there was the oasis cafe and i love their tuna sandwich that they had there so thank you for reminding me of the oasis i've got a little map on the website so all the restaurants that everybody's chosen i've put on the map and those that no longer exist i have created a little list below the map of the restaurants that people have mentioned, like the globe that no longer exists. So another, another place that no longer exists, but it was quite the hotspot for uh, those of us in the early years. And it was more of a happy hour place when, when we did start doing happy hours was the crocodile lounge. And that was roughly fifth South and 
oh, maybe Main Street or something, no longer exists. I've got some great stories about that. <laughs> so someday might share those. Um, but yes, that was a that was one of the favorite happy hour places. All right, Crocodile Lounge. You've got to tell me one of these stories. You can't do you can't give me a teaser like that. Say I got some great stories, maybe another time. Now is the time to share at least one of them. Okay. Well, we would we it was a great fun place. And it was a little hole in the wall and and you walked in and it had the palm tree and you know, some <laughs> fake landscaping, if you will. And it it just had a character that we a group of us loved and we would go over there and go for happy hour. And, uh, their specialty was fried pickles. So you'd go and you'd have an order of fried pickles and some drinks. And there was one particular story and Ina Grenis is probably going to shoot me, but we went there and had quite a number of white Russians to the tune of where we got the bill and I think our mouths dropped open. And it was a funny story because her um, colleague, now husband, Tom Sosuski, um, picked up the bill and she was angry with him about that. So she grabbed his credit card and found some scissors behind the bar somehow and cut up his credit card. <laughs> wow. So, Yeah. So we had we had a lot of fun times like that throughout the years. Okay, so the moral of the story is don't go out for drinks with Ina Grannis and try to pay. <laughs> there you go. Okay, well, this has been so wonderful to wrap things up, Karen. Um, what's What's a memory that when you think back on it, it just it just makes you feel so good. It was such an inspiring moment. It could have been during the games. It could have been before the games. It could have been at a competition or behind the scenes. So I have two. I ha I would say one of my first ones is that um, the night of opening ceremonies. And I wasn't even going to go because I was exhausted, as you can imagine, from that you know, three day build out. And we were already in practice sessions with the figure skating. So I had to be at work the next morning, like at four in the morning. And so I wasn't going to go. And Jerry said to me, you have to go. You are not allowed not to go. You have to go. And I sat up in the nosebleed sections, freezing my buns off because it was incredibly cold. And when they lit the torch and then also when the 9-11 flag um, was presented, I, I was just so incredibly glad I went, even though I was so exhausted. Uh, it just gave you a feeling of shivers down your spine and not just from the cold, but here we are, here it is, we are doing this. So that was an amazing, amazing part of the games for me. The second is I wanted to sort of give a shout out to Paralympics because I think people have been talking a lot about Olympics and uh, two things. One, I think this was also the first games that the Olympic and Paralympic planning went hand in hand. So we were, we were doing that planning together. And I had the opportunity to 
go over to Sweden and see an, an, an event for disabled skiers over there. And what was so amazing is through some of those travels, you make these friends because you have all this in common with the, the Olympics and Paralympics. And so when the Paralympics were on, my venue was done, but I was still doing other work, you know, with the closing out the venue, but I was able to go to uh, the cross country biathlon venue for Paralympics. And it was so, it was just amazing to see these athletes um, and, and they're not disabled in my mind in any way. They're incredible, the strength and athleticism and everything that they show. But as well as I was actually able to see some of these people I had met in other countries. And it that to me, and that's sort of a lasting legacy too, of you meet these people and now you know people all over the world and in so many countries. And it gives you an understanding of what their culture is like around the world. Well, thank you so much for sharing those stories. I'm glad that you gave a shout out to the Paralympic Games because you're right. We often focus on the Olympic Games, but the Paralympic Games are amazing. And for me, it's been really interesting to see in the most recent games editions, just how popular the Paralympics have been with the spectators. You know, they they decrease the ticket prices. They make them more available uh, to a different demographic. And you see a lot of families with children going and attending these games. And it's just a hoot. I mean, it's a lot of fun. So thank you so much for giving a shout out to the Paralympic Games. Karen, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to learn more about you or reconnect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I'd happy I'd be happy to hear from anybody. Absolutely. And I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, or they can email me at kecoppel at AOL.com. And yes, I'm still on AOL. <laughs> hey, there's no shame in still being on AOL. I still have a hotmail email address that I use. Uh so um, you know, a shout out to those 90s companies, Hotmail and uh and AOL. Karen, it's been fun. Thank you again. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll talk with you again next week. 